Intelligence director Kim Jae-gyu was uneasy. In the dining room laid the body of President Park Chung-hee, and in the bathroom his bodyguard Chachi Chol. Kim had killed them both. The scene outside the dining room was no better. Four of Pak's security detail had been shot in cold blood just minutes before by Kim's KCIA aides. Kim was faced with a choice. He could either stay and alert his KCIA colleagues to what had truly happened, risking his arrest. Or he could go and potentially incite a wave of change that would transform the government of South Korea. He left, dashing out of the KCIA compound in Seoul. By killing the president, he had already jeopardized his own fate. But the fate of South Korea still hung in the balance. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on Park Chung-hee, South Korea's second president. He was assassinated on October 26, 1979, by his longtime colleague, KCIA director Kim Jae-gyu. The death of Park would remain in the minds of the public for years as the debate surrounding his legacy and impact on the country continued. Last week, we discussed Park's rise to power from his humble roots. We also dug into the growing discontentment of the South Korean public as his presidency slid from democracy into authoritarianism. Ultimately, it was his own colleague, Kim Jae-gyu, who would pull the trigger, ending Park's life. This week, we'll delve into the aftermath of the assassination, including Kim Jae-gyu's trial. We'll also discuss the nostalgia for Park in the decades following, and how his years in the Blue House would influence future generations of politics. On October 26, 1979, at around 8 p.m., Chief Secretary Kim Kwan was hiding inside the KCIA safe house. He was one of three witnesses still alive who'd seen the president's assassination, along with the two women who'd been dining with the group. Like those women, Kim Kwan had fled the dining room when gunfire broke out and had been sheltering in the bathroom ever since. When all was quiet, he left and went to find Pak. He found him slumped on the floor near where they'd been dining just moments earlier. Kim Kwan didn't waste any time. 
he rushed the dying president to a nearby hospital. Though the general told doctors to save President Pak at all costs, Pak was likely dead upon arrival. A later report said he died en route. In total, the evening massacre left five others dead in addition to President Pak, his advisor, Cha Chi Chal, three bodyguards, and a presidential chauffeur. What exactly happened in those hours after Kim Jae-gyu shot the president would be debated for months to come. Each government report contradicted or amended the one that came before it. It was clear that the truth would be hard to extract early on. According to the Washington Post's account, which was based on an official release from the South Korean government, after he shot Pak, Kim Jae-gyu frantically left the dining room. Outside, without his shoes or coat, he found General Chung Sung-hwa, a military official who had been dining nearby. Kim grabbed the general's arms and said, big things have happened. Kim Jae-gyu explicitly avoided saying he had killed Pak. He instead alluded that the president was dead with the phrase, he is gone. The two men hailed a car, which drove them to another KCIA office complex. General Chung Sung-hwa, still unclear on the cause of the president's death, called a gathering of top military aides at the KCIA offices. He feared Seoul might be under foreign attack. Among the invited officials was Chief Secretary Kim Kae-won, who was still at the hospital with the newly deceased president. He left the hospital and President Park's body to join the meeting. Though it's unclear if he even tried to explain the events of that evening to the group, upon his arrival, Director Kim Jae-gyu met with him privately. He told him not to speak of what had happened. Then Kim Jae-gyu revealed his intended plan to K-won in confidence. He anticipated that following Park's death, the military would invoke martial law. A military revolutionary committee would be formed, hopefully setting the stage for a government turnover. Kim Kae-won allegedly agreed with this plan, though likely with reluctance. He wasn't about to challenge the man he had just watched kill the president in cold blood. The group of generals moved locations shortly after, this time to the Ministry of Defense. They had still not announced to anyone that President Park was dead. As a result, when they met with civilian officials within the ministry, they were confused as to why there was a pressing urge to declare martial law. Chief Secretary Kim Kae-won thought it would be impossible to create a military revolutionary committee without divulging that the president had been assassinated. So finally, he decided to speak out. He told General Chung, likely in private, that Kim Jae-gyu had shot Pak. With this revelation, General Chung slipped out of the Ministry of Defense to an army bunker. He needed to get away from the murderer and put together a plan of action. After several hours of deliberation at the bunker, General Chung and his colleagues decided that Kim Jae-gyu would be arrested. Even the KCIA director wasn't above the law. A car was sent back to the Ministry of Defense, where Kim was still working on urging his colleagues to declare martial law. When the car arrived to pick him up, Kim Jae-gyu likely thought nothing of it. 
The generals had been shuffling back and forth around the city all night. But upon entering the vehicle, Kim Jae-gyu was arrested. Still, news of Pak's death wasn't announced to the public. Instead, early the next morning, on October 27th, martial law was implemented under the notice that the president had been involved in an accident. Nearly 10 hours had passed since the president's death before news leaked that something was wrong. A broadcast went out to the public later that morning, but it only gave notice that the cabinet had convened the night before and that Prime Minister Che Gyu Ha would be serving as acting president until further notice. Two hours passed before another update from the government went out. President Park was dead. The death had been an accident. Director Kim Jae-gyu was unaware that his gun was loaded. To elaborate, the bulletin continued on, saying Kim's gun went off amidst an argument between himself and Chachi Chal. It failed to divulge that five other people were brutally slain as well. Yet even this report was redacted just one day later. On October 28th, a new account was dispatched saying that Pak and Chachi Chal had been shot intentionally by director Kim Jae-gyu. It also disclosed that five of Pak's bodyguards had been killed by KCIA agents. The public waited anxiously for more details, but they were sparse. A minor update came on October 30th, stating that three days prior, General Kim Kwan had been brought in for questioning. The rollout of information was absurdly slow, and the public was aware of how out of the loop the government was keeping them. The information they were fed was out of date and likely no longer accurate by the time it reached them. Meanwhile, internally, the army was shifting its ranks to fill the hole left by Kim Jae-gyu, who had been detained and was awaiting his fate. The deputy chief of army staff, General Lee Hee-song, was appointed as acting director of the KCIA. This appointment indicated that until further notice, the intelligence agency would be kept under the strict discretion of the military. Since the morning of October 27th, upwards of 12,000 troops were dispersed throughout Seoul. The martial law order expanded the public curfew and curbed unauthorized public gatherings. And most importantly, news and media outlets were brought under military censorship. Regulating what information was being released to the public would allow the government to control who knew what and when. It appeared that until they knew how to present the assassination, they didn't want any speculation on the incident, which could lead to more civil unrest. While the KCIA and Army remained mum regarding the progress of the investigation, burial arrangements began for the six victims. A customary brief mourning period commenced for the president. Politicians were able to go pay respects, which included opposition leader Kim Yong-sam and acting President Che. The five slain bodyguards, including Cha Chi Chal, were originally to be buried with President Park. However, just before the funeral, the ceremony was postponed. Pak's bodyguards would be buried privately. Instead, a state funeral was held solely for 61-year-old Pak Chung-hee at the National Cemetery in Seoul on November 3rd, 
1979. He was buried beside his late wife, 48-year-old Yu Gong-su, who had been killed just five years earlier by a communist assassin aiming for her husband. The mood of the funeral was somber, and attendees avoided addressing the progress of the investigation. Acting President Che delivered a brief eulogy saying, The death of Your Excellency has dealt us a great shock. However, we are coping with this state of emergency caused by the sudden loss of our leader with composure and wisdom and without unrest. Three days after the funeral, Major General Chun Du Huan, head of army security, stepped before the national press. Chun was in charge of the investigation into the assassination. As he addressed the media, the picture finally started filling in. General Chun Du Huan confirmed that Kim Jae-gyu had been contemplating an assassination attempt long before the night of the murder. Furthermore, his press conference brought three critical facets of the assassin's motive to light. According to Chun, the first was that Kim Jae-gyu was becoming increasingly jealous of Chachi Chal. The bodyguard was one of Pak's closest advisors and confidants. Kim may have felt Cha was using his position near the president to undermine his power as intelligence director. Cha's proximity to the president's ear meant he was able to express his disapproval at how the KCIA was handling the riots in the cities of Pusan and Masan. This segued into the second element of the motive. General Chun believed Kim was afraid he was about to be dismissed as intelligence director for his mishandling of the riots. Finally, the army general asserted that Kim, due to his position in the KCIA, thought that he had the loyalty and support of Pak's cabinet. Following Pak's murder, he believed he would have the sway to convince them to make himself president. The spigot of information didn't stop there. Chun went on to describe the military's account of the hours leading up to the fateful dinner party. The president's bodyguard, Chachi Chal, had told director Kim Jae-gyu around 4 p.m. that afternoon that Pak was going to dine at the KCIA compound that evening. At this point, Kim Jae-gyu had to consider if this was his opportunity to act. He would be in close, nearly private quarters with the president. What Chun reported next was shocking. After Chief Secretary Kim Kae-won had arrived at the dinner, he complained to director Kim Jae-gyu that Cha, the president's bodyguard, was severely irritating him. To this, the director replied, I shall finish him off tonight. General Kim Kae-won allegedly took this news without surprise. It's possible that amid the growing tensions between colleagues, he took the comment as a dark joke, not an affirmation of intent. General Chun reiterated that Kim Jae-gyu had anticipated the declaration of martial law and wanted to stage an internal KCIA investigation into Pak's death, which he would undoubtedly lead. But that outcome never materialized. Instead, the investigation against Kim Jae-gyu only mounted. After Chun's team had gathered the evidence they needed to move forward, it was announced that seven men would be tried by a military court. Kim Jae-gyu, 
Chief Secretary Kim Kwan, four KCIA staffers who had killed Pak's bodyguards, and an anonymous eighth person on the basis of trying to cover up evidence. The scope of the investigation didn't stop there, though. Anyone who may have had information was considered relevant. According to a report by Kiesing's Record of World Events, 111 people had been interrogated, of whom 33 had been designated as witnesses. 53-year-old Kim Jae-gyu was sent out of Seoul in late fall of 1979 to await trial. He was detained in an army prison in the mountains 15 miles south of the capital. It was here that a series of conversations would take place between Kim and attorney Ryu Taek-hyung. The lawyer came to the Naman Mountain Fortress on November 30, 1979. The recordings of their talks shed light on Kim's mindset before his trial. One recording dug into Kim's stance on Pak's Yushin constitution. The Yushin was incredibly rigid and had done away with many common freedoms regarding speech and press. Kim thought that with his appointment to KCIA director, he could use his influence to peel back some of Pak's repressive policies. Though it's unclear how much influence Kim believed he held, it's clear that he thought he could make some progress with persuasion alone. He told the attorney, I can use this opportunity to attract the president's attention using rational methods. He continued on, though, I finally concluded that this would be impossible. The attorney asked when specifically he had made this revelation, and Kim replied December of 1978, nearly nine months before the murder. Kim said that he had considered taking action that April when student rioting had ballooned, but the timing wasn't right, so he delayed. Kim's initial plan in April of 1979 was the same as what he carried out on October 26, 1979. He stated that he had the exact same intention of shooting Pac, but the president's security detail proved too dense to carry out the assassination that spring. Kim's disclosure that he had long debated ousting Pak by violent ends would be further dissected the next month when he went before a military court. Up next, we'll see how Kim Jae-gyu defended his actions as he went on trial. Now, back to the story. We left Kim Jae-gyu awaiting trial in late November of 1979 for the murder of President Pak Chung-hee and his bodyguard Chachi Chol. In December of 1979, a little more than a month after Pak was assassinated, Kim and six of his associates went before a military court. Though the defense appealed that the case should be heard in a civilian courtroom, the nature of the crime was deemed fit for military court by high-ranking judges. Unlike a typical jury with unbiased civilians, military court panels were often made up of senior army officials. It was possible that some already had their own opinions of Kim Jae-gyu from his long record of military service. And like a good soldier, Kim had the air of someone who was unwilling to back down. According to the New York Times, Kim Jae-gyu advanced into the courtroom at the start of each trial session with a slight swagger. 
The panel wasted no time digging into Kim's intentions. According to the Washington Post, when he was questioned about why he wanted pot gone, Kim claimed that he had disagreed with the government on the handling of student riots last fall and feared a widespread crackdown on dissidents was coming. Even more, Kim Jae-gyu expressed his resignation that Pak's government was in the pocket of big business. He felt the Tayballs, the mega conglomerates, were fueling corrupt politicians in the regime and placing financial advancement before good governance. The Toronto Globe and Mail reported, Kim Jae-gyu told the same court-martial he believed the Yushin system was not designed for the good of the people and he had killed the president to restore democracy in South Korea. The former KCIA director said he wanted to turn the martial law command into a revolutionary committee. These committees generally bridged the short gap from coups to interim government. Despite the implications, Kim Jae-gyu denied he had any intention of replacing Park as president. He also insisted that his co-defendants were unaware of his broader plan. He appealed to the court, urging them to consider mercy for the other men. They were just working under his orders. Kim said they were, quote, innocent as sheep. General Kim Kwan took the stand later. He insisted that he had been ignorant of Kim Jae-gyu's plan to kill the president. He further claimed that director Kim Jae-gyu had been undoubtedly loyal to Park. The director had, quote, worked hard to protect Park's Yushin system, even though he personally opposed it. It's unclear why Kim Kwan was so defensive of the assassin though perhaps he believed vouching for their shared loyalty to Pak would bring them both merciful sentences. After hearing each of the accounts of the men accused, the military court was left to deliberate. They returned with their verdict on December 20, 1979. The accused men were allowed to address the court once more before being sentenced, and 53-year-old Kim Jae-gyu was the last man to speak. He stood with his shoulders back, as if to prove he was not pleading. I am happy to have found good cause for death, he said. I do not want to beg for my life. He went on to thank those in attendance, directing his words toward his defense attorney and the panel of court-martials. As I leave this world, he said, I will keep within me this deep thanks to you all. All seven men were sentenced for participating in the crime or attempting to cover up evidence. Kim Jae-gyu took his sentence of double murder and treason with impassive composure, according to a Toronto newspaper. The verdict was read with strident clarity. He would face the death penalty. The rigidity of the sentence made clear that the acts incited by Kim contributed to a vicious circle of violence, a circle that would not be tolerated. Whether it was coincidence or purposeful, the day of Kim Jae-gyu's sentencing fell on the exact same day that five years earlier, Moon Se-gwang was executed for killing First Lady Yu Gong-soo in 1974. Six of the seven men were given time to go through the appeals process before the sentence was carried out. 
Only one was successful. Kim Kwan was initially sentenced to death, but his appeal amended his sentence to life in prison. The South Korean Supreme Court confirmed the fate of the other man on May 20th, 1980. They too would be sentenced to death. Four days later, Kim Jae-gyu and four of his KCIA agents were hanged in Seoul. The timing of the hanging has been subject to analysis in later years by academics. Nearly five months passed between Kim's sentencing and execution. Reporter Donald Kirk observed that the new leadership likely wanted to use Kim as leverage to quell unrest. Lieutenant General Chun Du Hwan appeared to have timed the execution to serve as an example to those who were attempting to defy authority. The new leadership following Pak's assassination hadn't subdued the widespread civilian protesting, especially amongst students. The May 24th hanging of Kim Jae-gyu and his fellow KCIA agents apparently marked the pinnacle of gruesome student rioting in the South Korean city of Gwangju. Yet the execution and its place as a grisly teaching exercise indicated that the vicious circle of violence did not end with Kim's assassination of President Park. Prime Minister turned President Che Gyu Ha would remain in office for one year following Park's death. He was quick to undo many of Park's strident rules, including repealing the bans on criticizing the Constitution. The release of opposing politicians from house arrest soon followed. But despite his attempt to loosen the strongman's grip, Che was subject to the larger military infrastructure already in place. General Chun Du Huan, who ran Pak's assassination investigation, had alliances throughout the presidential cabinet. Chun used these relationships to secure the position of KCIA chief in April of 1980, taking over Kim Jae-gyu's former position. He then proceeded to declare martial law and stage a coup, which led to violent riots. President Che resigned in August of 1980, and Chun assumed the presidency. Chun's eight-year tenure returned the country to dictator-like standards. After he left office in 1988, he was replaced by one of the participants in his coup, Ro Tae-woo. But even though he had participated in Chun's 1979 coup, Ro Tae-woo quickly stepped away from associating with the authoritarian rules before him. He became known for an eight-step program that introduced sweeping reforms, from restoration of freedom of the press to a commitment to fair elections. It was the most civilian-oriented legislation in years. Roe held office from 1988 until 1993. A constitutional amendment barred him from running for a third term in 1992, ushering in his successor, Kim Yong-som. Kim Yong-sam was, according to the New York Times, the first civilian leader for South Korea in three decades. Though he made some progress in his five years as president, with laws meant to dissuade corruption, his time in the Blue House ended on a low note. By the late 1990s, the quiet creep of nostalgia had settled in. South Korea's economy was not just stagnating, but floundering. 
the Asian financial crisis of 1997 would not skip over the country. When a major finance company in Thailand defaulted, the effects rippled. Currencies across the region plummeted. Many of South Korea's Taebals, large conglomerate companies, were affected. These Taebals that Pak Chung-hee had championed during his presidency had since benefited from preferential access to credit in the 1970s and 80s. Since they were tightly tethered to the South Korean banking system, when these large companies suffered, so did the banks. And when the country's economic stability was contingent on a select group of big players, according to Seoul's finance forum chair, Kim Ki-won, the government would not dare allow a big horse to die. South Korea was granted a relief package of $55 billion in U.S. currency from the International Monetary Fund. According to the New York Times, at that time, the loan was the largest international economic rescue ever. Though it prevented the country from falling into default, the next five years would necessitate sweeping reforms to the country's financial institutions and regulatory bodies. The turbulence that came with these reforms was felt by South Koreans in their wallets, jobs, and investments. The instability of South Korea's economy left the country yearning for better times, like the lucrative days under President Park Chung-hee. As recently as 2010, nearly 30 years since Pak was killed, surveys have been conducted about his success and legacy as a politician. The Korea Democracy Barometer 2010 reported that 34% of the respondents selected Pak's regime as the best government since the 1960s. The continued reverence for Pak appears to stem from his near-miracle-like transformation of the country's economy. Wu Jin-kong noted in his 2016 paper that many respect him as the architect of the Korean model of economic development. When the public was wishing for leadership that could stimulate a booming economy, they latched onto this specter of history. The flourishing economy, even if it occurred under authoritarianism, prompted citizens to look back on Pak's presidency with a forgiving eye. More so, older South Koreans were aware that countries with similar origin stories didn't enjoy the surplus that their nation did in the heyday of the 60s and early 70s. In The Rise of the Strong Man's Daughter, political scientist Hyung Min Ju used North Korea as a foil to explain the uniqueness of the South's situation. Quote, the economic success of the Pak Chung-hee era can be best understood when compared to the experience of North Korea. There was no substantial difference in their ethnic, linguistic, religious, historical, and cultural heritages. The two countries were neck and neck in terms of economic prosperity before the Korean War. Yet 20 years later, the South's gross national product had eclipsed the North's by nearly double. But this incredible boom wasn't the work of Tayballs alone. It was a growth fueled by constant encouragement. Pak's rousing declaration that he wanted the people of South Korea to live a better life 
was appealing, and the economy was the vehicle that would get them there. This sentiment resounded with hardworking Koreans who, despite their best efforts, had often been subject to governance that left them without the means to live better. Park's economic plan was no small call to action, and it necessitated strong and consistent leadership. Taking responsibility for the nation's prosperity was the core of the Park presidency. This style, called CEO leadership, consists of a ruthless pursuit of a shared goal, economic growth at any cost. There was a chance of democratic practices falling by the wayside, but that was something that Park accepted without apology. And for many citizens who lived through it, the ends justified the means. But the lack of true democracy in the Park regime has been a sticking point with many observers as it goes against a common trend. In theory, the modernization of countries often ushers in further democratization. However, with Park, his modernization effort actually eroded the country's freedom. Instead, it was the progressive liberals who fought hard against a dictatorship and finally democratized the country. It seemed that the passage of time since the Park years had led some citizens to gloss over the brutality of his regime. Their nostalgia didn't stop with economic policies either. In 1999, plans for the Park Chung-hee Memorial Hall were announced. Naturally, the project fell under wide public scrutiny. It seemed especially odd that the president at the time, Kim Dae-jung, was leading the project. He had long been a political rival of Park. Not only had Kim Dae-jung lost the presidential election to Park in 1971, but he was brutally beaten and placed under house arrest during the Park regime. But Kim Dae-jung's reputation as an advocate of peace preceded him, and despite opposition, the project continued. In 2001, the initiative received the equivalent of over 17 million U.S. dollars from the South Korean government to build a three-story hall in Seoul in Park's honor. However, when a more liberal administration took over the presidency, it refused funding for the hall the project became embroiled in a legal battle. Construction finally began in 2009, and it was completed in early 2012. But its completion didn't indicate the end of the debate. The building was a tangible manifestation of the disagreement between South Koreans on Park's legacy. Some civic groups denounced it as a library built with taxpayers' money with books and other materials related to dictator Park Chung-hee. More optimistically, others countered that it had the potential to educate younger generations on the country's rise to modernity under the late president. Clearly, despite the passing of time, the country would remain divided on its views of Park Chung-hee. However, in the 2000s, it demonstrated some unification on one front, his daughter, Park Gun-hae. Up next, we'll look at Park Gun-hae's return to politics and her election to the presidency. Now, back to the story. Park Chung-hee's daughter, Park Gun-hae, was once in the public eye nearly as much as her father. 
When Gun Hei's mother, Yu Gong Su, was killed in 1974, she took up the First Lady's duties. At just 22 years old, Gun Hei began appearing next to Pak at ceremonies and events on a weekly, if not daily, basis. But the emotional pain caused by losing two parents to assassinations was undeniable. Following Pak Chung-hee's death, Gun Hei largely disappeared from the public eye. She instead used her status to help create scholarship committees and spent much of her time overseeing them. However, in the late 1990s, Gun Hei was drawn back into politics once more. The Asian financial crisis slammed the South Korean economy in 1997, and politicians were reeling on how to rouse support. Conservative politicians realized that Park Geun-hae could rely on the legacy of her father's economic boom to rally the disheartened country. So, seemingly out of left field, in 1997, she announced she would return to politics. Shortly after, in 1998, the 45-year-old entered the parliamentary election in Daegu under the conservative Hanarangdong party. It seemed fitting since Daegu was also the political home of her father, Pak Chung-hee. Once back within the world of politics, Gun-hae was energized. She served a total of five terms in the National Assembly. She was even bestowed the nickname Queen of Elections. She could draw in votes even when the deck was stacked against her party. In 2012, she would jump into the race for president. A large part of her campaign focused on her past experience serving as an acting first lady alongside her father. This nostalgia especially appealed to many female voters who turned out in droves for the 2012 election. Women were likely hopeful that Gun Hay might evoke the characteristics of her mother, the late first lady. Yu Gong Su was known for her dedication to charity, even deemed the mother of the nation during her husband's presidency. Sliding in to secure just over 3% of the margin of victory, on December 19, 2012, Pak Gun-hae was elected as the first female president of South Korea. However, her presidency would quickly spiral from noble to notorious. Allegations grew that Gun Hay was engaging in bribery. The reveal that she had taken millions in handshake deals from large companies soon followed. She was impeached in late 2016 and removed from office shortly after, in March 2017. According to the BBC, this made her the first democratically elected president to be impeached in South Korea. She would leave the Blue House with an air of disappointment and anger lingering over the presidential mansion, her childhood home no more. In April 2018, a South Korean court sentenced Pak Gun-hae to 24 years in prison for bribery, extortion, abuse of power, and other criminal charges, according to the New York Times. Her sentence was extended from 20 years when a higher court found the collusion was more far-reaching than first anticipated. Despite her effort to rouse the legacy of her father, Pak Gun-hae left office without delivering upon the bold promises she had made just years before. 
the end of the Park Gun-hae presidency marked a peculiar end to the Park Chung-hee era as a whole. Without the legacy her father created, Gun-hae likely would have never returned to the political sphere in the first place. But the memory of rapid growth under Park Chung-hee set up an expectation for Gun-hae's potential that she never rose to meet. And the irony of Gun-hae's demise was that she had relied on the nostalgia of her father's presidency to re-enter politics. Only to be ousted for her entrenchment in the mega-conglomerates that Park Chung-hee helped build. Though Gun-hae's poor conduct resulted in an abuse of presidential power, it's important to consider the alternative. If Park Chung-hee had never been assassinated, his presidency in the late 1970s would have likely continued to threaten the fate of South Korean democracy. Being the strongman who ushered in financial prosperity had a high price tag. The well-being of South Korean citizens severely stagnated, especially toward the end of his time in office. Had Park continued to rule with an iron fist in light of the growing unrest, it's nearly certain that the bloody showdowns between authorities and civilians would have continued. Further restrictions on freedoms of speech and press could have been implemented. Though it was long debated that he was one already, the Pak regime could have officially established itself as a dictatorship. The decades following Pak's presidency would oscillate wildly for South Korea's government, but it was certain that the country wanted to carve its own path forward with power vested in its people. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Assassinations was written by Mackenzie Moore with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 